Today, um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, time, and uh, time is something uh, that we don't think a lot about. We do think about it in terms of what time is it or how much time is left, but when is the last time that you really thought about time? Uh, Just not time, but the nature of time, the concept of time. And and my guess is probably not lately because you're busy living life. You've got other things uh, to think about. But time is an interesting thing because we interact with it all the time. We we measure it. You know, we got our watches, we got our clocks, uh, we've got calendars, we've got our computers, we've got our phones, and and we measure time uh, throughout the day to know exactly where we are in relationship to time. We reference time. uh, We leverage time to uh, tell folks how old we are. Uh, We reference time to set the context for something that happened, whether in the past, uh, the present, or the future. Uh, We reference times uh, to know uh, how to cook things and how long to cook things. So we're always interacting with time. We consult it. You know, how much time do I have left? How much time till we get there? You know, how long is the plane flight going to be? So we're always consulting time. And and the reason that we do this is we want to live in partnership with time uh, because, you know, when it comes to time, it brings our life structure, it brings our life consistency, it brings our life efficiency, and it brings our life context. So we're always interacting with time, and on one level, we are thinking about time quite a bit, but we don't really think about the concept of time or, you know, the idea of time itself. And, and when we do, we realize quite soon that the nature of time is very complicated. It's not as straightforward as we might think it is. Hey, what time is it? Oh, it's 12.06. You know, what day is it? Oh, this is Sunday. And, and that seems straightforward and it seems easy to grasp. But um, I don't know if you know this, but there's such a thing as American standard time. And, and of course, us Americans would have our own version of time. American standard time. And, and so we, we've got our own standard time, and, and it's kept in Boulder, Colorado in a government lab. There's actually three clocks, and, and they've named these clocks. And, and these clocks are tasked with creating and establishing a consistent, coherent time for all of us Americans uh, to interact with and to abide by and to know at any given point in time what time is it. Uh, Now, these three clocks, they tick forward um, with hydrogen atoms, and they are so accurate, they are accurate to less than a second over the span of 30 million years, and that's pretty impressive. It's better than your wristwatch. It's better than your phone. Uh, I mean, these are pretty impressive clocks, And, and then once this time is established in Boulder, it's exported to different parts of the country, and it shows up on your smartphone, it shows up on your computer, it shows up in the little corner of the cable news network and and self-regulating clocks and self-regulating watches, Um, and and it shows up in your world. Uh, It keeps everything kind of in perfect sync, and the reason that we have a standard time is to bring organization, efficiency, predictability, and context uh, to our way of life. Uh, That's the reason that evening news always comes on at 6.30. That's true on CBS, ABC, NBC. Uh, That's the reason that the stock market always opens at one specific time, and everybody knows what time that's going to happen. And it's this standard time that decides when the day of the week changes, when the month changes, when the year changes. Uh, And and it's just really an interesting thing to think about because uh, before the 1880s, I'm not sure if you know this, but before the 1880s, we didn't have standard time in America. Every city kept their own time. 
And you can imagine how chaotic that would be and how upside down that would cause your life to be or my life. It's like, hey, can we meet for coffee in Somerset, you know, at four o'clock? And I'll meet you over there at four o'clock. But, you know, your four o'clock in Somerset is not my four o'clock in London. And it just causes all kinds of problems. And so in American history, Big Railroad, Big Railroad, which was really powerful, stepped in and said, you know what? We need some standard time because we're doing all these departures and all these arrivals and we're shipping goods and we're carrying people and, and everybody needs to know when to look for the train, when to get on the train and when the train's gonna get there. And so the government stepped in and said, okay, we're gonna give everybody American standard time so that everybody can have the same framework and so everybody can know exactly what time it is. And so that's one way to think about time and, and that's pretty interesting to think about, but there's also a way to geek out on time. And if you know me, I am a little bit of a geek and I do like to geek out from time to time. There's an element of time that philosophers and physicists and cosmologists uh, disagree on and they argue about. They can't even agree on time and what it is and what time it is or what time it isn't. And, and there's a big debate and, and the question is, is time fixed and objective or is it subjective and merely a human construct? And I know hardly any of us have ever thought about this before. Uh, what we do know is that time uh, on some level is fundamental to the universe. It's fundamental to your life and fundamental to my life. And it's fundamental to how we interact with the world around us. Um, the big question that physicists and scientists and philosophers wrestle with is, is time the fourth dimension? You know, you got three other dimensions, but is the fourth dimension time? Or did humans just construct time because we measured, you know, how long it took the sun to rise and set and the constellations and all that? Um, Albert Einstein, which we've all heard of, he had an evolving sense of time. Um, he saw time as a coordinate that helps us make sense of all the other dimensions. Uh, for example, let's say I tell you, hey, I would like for you to meet me for coffee. And let me tell you how to get to the coffee shop. You walk out of your house, go five miles east, and at five miles, you turn left and go one mile, you walk into that coffee shop, I'll meet you on the second floor, and we'll have coffee together. And so what do you do? You go five miles east, you turn left, you go one mile, you walk into the coffee shop, you go to the second floor, but we don't have coffee together. And the reason we don't have coffee together is because you don't see me. And the reason that you don't see me is because I didn't add the fourth coordinate. I didn't tell you when I would be there. And so there's this whole idea that time helps us to understand the physical universe that we're in. It helps us understand our place within time. Uh, Einstein, early on in his career, uh, because like really good scientists, as evidence unfolds, you know, opinions can change. But early on, he said this. He said, people like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. Time, in other words, he said, is an illusion. And then came the theory of relativity that Einstein uh, would develop. And, and he uh, came to the conclusion that time is part objective and time is part subjective depending on where you are and how you experience time. In other words, if you're a high elevation, uh, there's low gravity, time clicks by fractionally faster. If you're at a low elevation and gravity is heavier, time ticks fractionally slower. Uh, he also discovered that the faster you go, just think about this for a moment, the faster you go, the slower time itself goes. So if you could get on a spaceship traveling at the speed of light, it's really like a time machine because if you could travel at 99% of the speed of light on a spaceship 
And then you went on a five-year journey into space, two and a half years out, two and a half years back. When you come back to earth, it's going to be 36 years later for everybody on earth, though it's only been 10 years for you. I know, right? I mean, you didn't wake up thinking about this today. I can guarantee you that. And it's something. I mean, Einstein, think about this. If Einstein, and I just want to show you this in relationship to there's so much we don't understand about time. If Einstein could have boarded a spaceship when he was born in 1879 and it was traveling at 99% of the speed of light, speed of light, if it landed today, he'd only be 17 years old. This is even bigger, better. If he could get on a spaceship the day he was born and travel at 99.9999999% of the speed of light and he landed today, he would only be one day old, though 144 years have passed on earth. And it gets even crazier when you talk about the expanding universe and time-space expanding or black holes in the event horizon where the gravity is so strong, time itself stops and time and space flip and there's no time at all. You say, well, what's the point? My point is time is so much more than what time is it? Time is a seriously complicated thing, but yet our lives are immersed within it and our lives are consumed by it. And take all the science and all that other stuff out. You know that we experience time in different ways depending on a number of variables. The first time you drive somewhere feels longer than the second time you drive there. When you have fun, time what? Flies. When you are bored, time creeps. When you're in a familiar environment, time goes by faster. When you're in an unfamiliar environment, time seems to go slower. The older you get, you've heard this, the faster time goes. When you're young, time seems to just barely creep by. You've said this before. This day has been the longest day. Has it really? Isn't it still 24 hours in that day, 60 minutes in every hour? This has been the longest week. This has been the longest year. So in many ways, the way that we process time, it's emotional. It's what's going on within us and around us. So time is just not what time is it. Time is this complicated thing that's a part of our life, and that's what we've been talking about for the past few weeks. The time of your life, the time of my life, the days of our life. We've been talking about how in 2024, we should have a brand new framework, a brand new posture for how we live life and see life, a framework that can be an absolute game changer. And it's the words of Moses. He, he prayed this prayer. He, he leads us into an example of starting every day with this prayer. And I hope you hear this over and over again as you wake up, as you go through your day, you know, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's the framework to live every day. That's the framework to start every day. That's the framework to revisit throughout your day. Let's all just read this together. You ready? Let's go. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This is the framework because Moses figured out it's a valuable lesson. The more we remember death, the more we remember to live. Nothing inspires us to live quite like death. When we count our days, we know we only have so many days, so we want to make this day count. Life is short. This day matters. This day matters most. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow may not come. Today is all I've got, and I want to live it to the full. I want to make the most of it. And so Moses says, if you start every day numbering your days, and you can only number this day because you don't know about tomorrow. Yesterday's gone. But if you number today, you're reminded that you can't make more of your days, but you can make the most of this day. And he says, this type of framework, this type of posture, this type of attitude, it leads to wisdom. 
And wisdom is the thing that makes us better at life. And when you feel like and when you are better at life, life just seems better. And wisdom makes us better at life and it makes life better. So last week we talked about how this wisdom, it it leads you and it leads me to take responsibility for our lives today so that we can create the tomorrow that we want, the tomorrow that we have a vision for, because we know that what we do today makes a difference tomorrow. So today we're gonna do what's good. Today we're gonna do what's best. Today we're gonna do what's right, even if it's hard because tomorrow we'll be glad that we did so today. And all of that begins with a vision that every single one of us, we have to have a vision for tomorrow, that God wants to use me tomorrow. God has a good plan for me tomorrow. God's got the best in store for me. The best is yet to come. That type of hope leads to a vision. That type of vision leads to discipline to say, I'm gonna do today what I'll be glad I did tomorrow. Now, today I wanna talk about another aspect of wisdom that comes from counting our days. And it's a principle that when we count our days, starting this day, Counting our days ensures that we won't waste our days. Moses figured out that when we count our days, we are less likely to waste our days because we know this is the only day I've got. I have no idea if I'll have another. So I do not want to waste the one that I have been given. Now, wasting our days, unfortunately, is really easy to do. And I had a whole list of things, but I'm not gonna give it to you because it's borderline discouraging, but I will give you just a couple. Do you know that the average person, and a lot of us are probably average, unfortunately, a lot, average people in America spend between six and seven years on social media. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Six or seven years of possible living, just forfeited, just given away to looking at social media. Imagine for a moment, you went to the doctor this week and he said, you've got six to seven years to live. You're not gonna spend those years sick but you got six to seven years to live. You know what you would be motivated to do? To make the most out of those six to seven years. But yet a lot of us just give six or seven years away to social media. The average person watches about 11 years of television. So that puts us up about 17 years of just wasted life. Almost 20 years between our phone and a television. And listen to this, 33 years the average person spends in bed. I mean, some of you are like 45 years in bed, but I mean, 33, and only 26 of those, you're sleeping. Some of those years, you're just laying there. Some of those years, you're trying to convince yourself to get up. And, you know, I know some of you guys, I can see you now. We're doing more than laying there. Well, that's about three days of your life. <laughs> For some of you, a day and a quarter. So, no, it's, it's, we just waste our life, and here we are. We're, we're almost over 40 years. I know we got to sleep, but let's just, okay, let's take the sleep part off. We're, we're over 20 years, almost a quarter century of years, 25 years. So it's easy to waste time. And, and wasting time, when we talk about wasting time, wasting time seems innocent. Wasting time seems inconsequential. But don't ever forget, wasting time is tantamount to wasting life. And let's just put our cards on the table. We all know the pain and the sting and the regret of wasted days, wasted time, wasted years. We've all done it. We've all been there. We've all neglected to count our days and see today as the gift that it is, to treat it as the special occasion that it is. And we've all got yesterdays. We've all got time. We've all got wasted years that we can't relive. We can't undo. We can't get back. And when we think about that, 
when we think about that there are years that we have wasted, years that we have wasted, that can be a tough pill to swallow. And it's like, what do we do about that? What do we do with that? We can't forget it. We can't ignore it. That's not possible. But what if I told you, what if I told you it was possible not to relive wasted days and wasted years, but what if I told you there was a way to rescue them or to buy them back or to restore them or redeem them? What if you and I could do something today that was so fundamentally significant and important, it not only rippled into tomorrow, but it rippled into yesterday, even our wasted yesterdays. And that brings me to a guy by the name of Paul. Many of you know who Paul is, some of you may not, but Paul wrote uh, almost half of the New Testament. Paul was a guy who knew about wasted years. He, he knew about wasted time because uh, Paul, his life story, let me give it to you real quick. He was incredibly educated, nothing wrong with that. He was incredibly accomplished, nothing wrong with that. Uh, he was respected and esteemed by the peers of his day, nothing wrong with that. And he was incredibly successful at what he did. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But Paul got to a place in his life where he realized that all of his life had been inspired and motivated by a faulty, empty religious system. A, a misunderstanding of God, a misunderstanding of himself, a misunderstanding of other people, a misunderstanding of what life is and how life is to be lived and about what is most important. And Paul was able to look back on his life and he realized that his faulty, empty religious system that had inspired so much of his life and what he did and what he didn't do, it had turned him judgmental, it had turned him angry, and in his own words, he looked back on all of that and he said, you know what, those years of my life, they're just garbage. Matter of fact, he says, it's just, it's just a big pile of BS. It's just, it's just rubbish is what he would write in another letter. He says, that whole time of my life, it just feels worthless. It just feels empty. It just feels meaningless. He said, I thought I was winning, but I was losing. I was playing by the wrong scorecard. And if you know anything about Paul, he was putting innocent people in prison, Christians, putting innocent Christians to death because they believed different than he did. Paul once upon a time thought it would be better for you to be dead than to believe something different than him. And he looks back on that part of his life and he's like, what was I thinking? What was I doing? That's so empty. That's so worthless. It's just wasted. And so he wrestled with the idea of wasted yesterdays because he's human just like you and me. He, he would write to a group of Christians just like you and me because none of us bat 100%. Uh, Hall of Famers don't bat 100%. The greatest golfers in the world, they hit bad shots. The greatest quarterbacks have incomplete passes. Nobody's perfect. We're human, so we're gonna have wasted yesterdays. We're gonna have wasted time. We're gonna have wasted years. And so he writes to a group of people like us. We all have that in common. And he talks about in chapter one in his letter to the Ephesians, he says, I wanna remind you that God loves you. God has always loved you. God will always love you. That God, he chose you before the foundation of the world. He's adopted you into his family. He talks about God's grace that he has given, that it's by God's grace we've been saved, not of our works. It's what Christ did for us, not what we did for God that makes us right with God. And he says all of that because you and I can get real tempted to start living our life when we think about wasted yesterdays and wasted time and, and wasted years to begin to get up every day and, and, and like, we're gonna make that up. We're gonna make that up to God. 
You know, I wasted so much time. I made so many mistakes. I'm going to make it up. I'm going to make it up. And Paul says, don't ever forget, you and God are good. You and God are good because of what Christ did, not because of what you did or what you're going to do or what you're thinking about doing. He says, so don't, don't start living like that because that's just a futile way of living and it just leads to frustration and it just leads to defeat. But here's the advice that he gives to all of us who have wasted days and wasted time and wasted years somewhere back in there, somewhere back there in our history. He says, be very careful then how you live. In other words, be thoughtful. Evaluate how you live. Pay attention to how you live. Take inventory of how you live. Measure how you're living. Size it up. Take an account. Just don't wake up and live life passively. You wake up in the morning at the same time. You do the same things in the same way. Nothing wrong, wrong with routine. I do it every day. He says, but as you go through the routine of your day, just don't live life passively. And before you know it, you look up and it's 7.30 in the evening and you've given no thought to how you've lived the day. Don't live passively. Live intentionally. Live with a plan. Live with a purpose. Live on purpose. Just don't go through the motions. Consciously act. Consciously decide what you're gonna do with that day. It's the only day you've been given. Wake up in the morning, count that day, and choose to be careful about how you spend that day, how you live that day. Aim at worthy targets. Have a strategy. And know what the win is. Know what it means to win at the end of the day. What does that look like? He says, be careful. You know what it's like? It's like driving in the middle of the night and it starts to rain. And you're one of those drivers who kind of, you know, that's how you go. It's kind of how you do. But it's the middle of the night. It starts to rain. You sit up straight. Put both hands on the wheel. You put your phone down. And for some reason, I don't know why we do this, but we turn the radio down. It's like it helps us think or something. And all of a sudden we're thinking about, you know what? It would be real easy for somebody to cross over and hit me head on. And you're aware of that. That danger is always there, but now you're aware of it. You're paying attention. You're careful. You know that you could hit something in the road and spin out of control. You're being careful. You're conscious. You're in the moment. You're aware of what's going on around you and how you're interacting with it. That's what Paul's saying. He says it's like carrying a popping, steaming, hot cup of coffee filled to the brim, and there's kids running around. And you just don't run through the house, but you're real careful, you're real intentional, and you're making sure that nobody gets burnt, including yourself. You're carrying a knife, and you're careful. And all of these things, they cause us to slow the pace because the pace can create danger. Because the danger that pace can create is because we get careless. The pace gets out of hand and we get careless. And Paul says, be careful how you live because the pace can become hypnotic. He says, slow down, pay attention, care about the details, focus more, take it all in, be present. Know where you are in relationship to what's going on around you. And Paul says that, being careful concerning how you live. Be careful, pay attention to your routine, to your pace, to your schedule, to all of those things because they matter. Pay attention, this, this is worth writing down, I promise you it is. Pay attention to your intensity and to your level of intentionality because if they get out of balance, one will suffer. If you get too intense in the pace of your life, your intentionality will suffer. If you get out of balance and you get super intentional, you'll lose intensity. 
because it'll snuff the life out. He says, pay attention to the level of your intentionality and to your intensity. That's what it means to be careful. Otherwise, you may end up wasting your life. He says, be very careful then how you live. And then he takes it a step further. Not as wise, but as unwise. Not as unwise, but as wise. Moses mentioned wisdom. Paul mentions wisdom. And wisdom is something we gain through observation, something we gain through instruction, something we gain through experience. James, the half-brother Jesus said, if you like wisdom, just ask God who gives to all without holding back. Wisdom is living life with skill. But we've all seen the skilled athlete, the skilled musician, the skilled surgeon. Living life with skill, not perfection. Every surgeon, the greatest, make mistakes. The greatest musicians on occasion strike the wrong chord. Your life will not be a straight arrow. It will not be a straight line. It's gonna be up and down. It's gonna fluctuate. There's gonna be different systems. There's gonna be different seasons. There's gonna be ups and downs. And that's just the human experience. Wisdom is living life with skill, not perfection. It's having high aims and noble means to accomplish those aims. Now, the alternative of what Paul says is, if you're not wise, you're unwise. And the other word for that in the scripture is, you know, you're a fool. He said, let me tell you about the fool. The fool doesn't count his days, and the fool wastes his days. Foolishness will lead you to a wasted life. Let me tell you some things about fools out of the scripture. It's, it's, a, great, it's a great study. You can just study it through the Proverbs. You can study it through the Old Testament, New Testament. Just look up unwise, look up foolish, look up folly, look up simplicity, and, and just see all the things that the scripture says about it. I'll give you just a few because this is really important. Paul says, if you want to waste your life, just play the role of the fool. Go through life hating knowledge, thinking you know everything, thinking you know best, not being teachable, not thinking you can learn a better way to do what you've always done or to think differently or to feel differently or to respond differently. Fools hate knowledge. He says, if you go through life hating knowledge, you're gonna inevitably waste your life. You know what fools do? Fools live life easily offended and overly sensitive. And there's no better, no quicker way to waste the years of your life than to just foolishly choose to be offended at everything, to be overly sensitive about everything. And that's what fools do. They wear their emotions on their face. They wear their emotions on their sleeve. And don't ever forget this. Life is rarely kind to the overly sensitive. If you're overly sensitive, easily offended, life's gonna be brutal. You're gonna find people brutal. And you're gonna look up one day and see how much of your life you wasted being upset about things that were really not that important. They were only important to you, but they were not important in the bigger scheme of things. So don't waste your life reacting and overreacting to every little thing. Life's too short to live it that way. And if you count every day, are you really gonna spend that day wanting to just let everybody know how upset you are about the smallest little thing? No, I don't think so. Fools get stuck in their own ways and they, they aren't open to change, even though they know that change is good and change is better. They, they just won't do it. They make excuses. This is how I am. This is how I've always been. This is how I'm always gonna be. Here's another thing about fools. Fools get sucked into other people's drama and conflict. I don't know if you know anybody like this. Not in this service, I know. They probably were at the 9.30. Let me tell you why people 
Let me tell you why foolish people get sucked into other people's drama and other people's business. It's because they don't have a life of their own. They make everybody else's life part of their life because they don't have a life. And they find their meaning and significance in getting into other people's business. And just in case you don't know this and you need to, other people's business are not your business. Don't live your life wasting your life getting sucked into other people's drama, inserting yourself into other people's drama. It's just not wise. That's why fools love conflict. It it makes them feel alive. It makes them feel like they're doing something. It makes them feel like they're a part of something. They love to grumble because they're not grateful and you can't grumble and be grateful at the same time. Matter of fact, you can't be angry and grateful at the same time. I dare you to try it. You can't be frustrated and grateful at the same time. The next time you get frustrated, the next time you get angry, you should just stop and find about five things to be grateful for and watch what happens to your frustration and to your anger. That's a foolish way to live. And if you live your life that way, if I live my life this way, we're gonna look back and say, I've wasted so many years. Fools get caught in the same repeating patterns of behavior. The the proverb says it this way, like a dog returns to It's vomit. A fool returns to the mess that they make over and over and over again. I don't know if you have a dog. I have a dog. We have a dog. I didn't want a dog, but we got a dog. Dog's named Huck. And Huck's favorite meal, his second favorite meal, is the meal that he revisits after he had the first meal of his. I mean, it's okay. I guess it's okay. It's kind of a self-cleaning mechanism. And I guess everybody needs a self-cleaning dog. And if he gets sick in the floor, I mean, just give him a couple of minutes. And it's like disgusting. And Paul says, that's foolishness. Why go through making the same mess over and over and over again? Learn from it. Because you look up one day and realize, oh my goodness. Fools won't change. In order to change, even if it means better, they won't. Fools love to be in the company of fools. You know why? Because they love the solidarity of shared mediocrity. They, they love the community of low expectations. Nobody's, nobody's going to challenge me to be different. Nobody's going to challenge me to be better. Nobody's going to challenge me to live wisely, to live on purpose, to live carefully. And Paul says, you're going to waste your life if you choose to live foolishly rather than with wisdom. So he says, here's what wisdom looks like. You make the most of every opportunity. When you're living life with wisdom, you're gonna make the most of every opportunity. Now, uh, I grew up in church and I grew up in a real conservative Baptist church, which means we were King James Version only. That was the Bible Jesus carried. And uh, King James, I mean, you know, nobody was even no godlier than King James. And, uh, but, you know, I was always born with a little bit of a rebellious streak in me. And so when I was a teenager, I bought me a new King James Version just to stick it to uh, the King James only folks that were so, so passionate about it. But many of you, you've heard this other way of saying it. Paul says, this is wisdom, making the most of every opportunity. Said another way in the King James and the new King James, it's redeeming the time. And I really like both of them. What does it mean to redeem the time? It means to make the most of every opportunity. What does it mean to make the most of every opportunity? It means that you're redeeming the time. Paul says that our life is about possibilities and opportunities. The possibility for the abundant life that Jesus came to offer, rich and satisfying, full, live to the max, and opportunities to actually embrace that life. So Paul says that when you're living life with wisdom, you look for opportunities 
Because when you look for opportunities, you'll see opportunities. We tend to see what we're looking for. He says, live your life with the wisdom. You count today. And when you know today could be your last day, you're looking for opportunities, opportunities to change, opportunities to get better, opportunities to tweak, opportunities to mature, opportunities to celebrate what's good, to be grateful, opportunities to tell people what they mean to you, opportunities to make a difference, to save the moment, savor the moment, to be present to friend well, to parent well, to live your faith out in a compelling way. He says, when you look for those opportunities, you're gonna see them. And wisdom makes the most of those opportunities. And when you make the most of those opportunities, it will redeem the time. Like I said, to seize the opportunity, you gotta be looking for it. You gotta be praying for it. And you gotta be doing the things you're supposed to be doing. And oftentimes when we're doing the things that we're supposed to be doing, opportunity gets created, it seems like, with more frequency because we're doing our part. And then God creates the opportunity, which is his part. Now, I told you, we, we, we've tried to figure out a lot about time. Um, scientists, physicists, uh, we're trying to wrestle with what does time mean. The Greeks were no different. The Greeks had two ways of discussing times. And I'll kind of give this to you, and uh, then we'll land the plane. But the Greeks tried to figure out, okay, what is time and what is our relationship to time? And so they came up with two words for time, chronos and kairos. Um, chronos is clock time. It, it's calendar time. It, it's minutes. It's hours. It's days. It's months. It's years. It's, it's quantitative. Uh, it's past. It's present. It's future. Obviously, it's where we get our English word chronicle uh, or chronological. Uh, so that's, that's chronos. In the scripture, it's Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time. God sent his son. At the right calendar date, at the right moment, at the right second, at the right hour, God sent forth his son. Or, you know, you find it when Herod said that he asked the wise men to tell him the exact time when they first saw the star. Now, in Greek myth, they always, you know, portrayed these ideas through the titans and through, you know, the pantheon of gods. And, and Kronos was a titan who was the father of Zeus. And it's a great story, but I'm not going to tell it to you. Uh, but Kronos was a terrifying ver version of Father Time. He's kind of bent over, long beard, long hair. He always had a weapon with him, and, and he always had an hourglass. And, and here's kind of a, a depicted picture of Kronos. And you see he's carrying a baby because Kronos, that's what he does. He, he takes from you. He kills you. He ages you. He, he pushes you into vulnerability towards disease, and he pushes you every second closer to death. That's how Kronos works. Seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years. However, Kairos was something entirely different. He, he was depicted as a young, good-looking, you know, kind of mis mischievous young man. He had, he had long-flowing locks in the front, but he was bald in the back. He had Wings on his back and wings on his feet because he was so fast. And Kairos was opportunity. And the reason he had no hair on, his, on the back of his head is because when he passed by, if you weren't ready, if you didn't seize the moment, there was nothing to grab onto. It's a moment. It's, it's a defining moment. It's the season of an open door, we would say. It's a divine moment that God puts within Kronos. It's a Kairos that God embeds into the moments and the minutes and the hours and the years of our life. It's a segment uh, of time that's ripe with potential. 
It's a moment that can change a destiny. It's a moment in time that can ripple into the future as well as into the past. It's for such a time as this type of thing. An opportunity that can change the trajectory of your life, my life, our life. It can change destinies in a moment. That's what it is. It's the divine moment. It's the God moment. It's the appointed season. It's when destiny hangs in the balance. It's when John the Baptist said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what it is. It's this appointed season, this right time, this defining moment, this God moment. When God enters into the time of your life, the day of your life, with a divine opportunity to step into something that could change everything for you and those around you. You see it throughout the Gospels, the woman who touched Jesus on the hem of the garment, that was her divine moment. For Zacchaeus in the tree and Jesus turns to him, that was his divine moment. For the Samaritan at the well and Jesus shows up, that's her divine moment. For the Samaritan on the road to Jericho and he looks over and he sees a man that's been beaten and left for dead. And he has an opportunity to do something good. It's his divine moment. It's when God enters into your time and he opens a door of opportunity, a God moment, a nudge, a wink, a whisper that changes everything. And Paul says, when we do that, it is redeeming the time. And to redeem, it means to Rescue from loss, to buy back, to restore. Don't, don't, don't listen. Don't, don't miss this because this is so good. When Jesus died on the cross, it, it says that he redeemed us. That he redeemed us by the shedding of his own blood. That Jesus died to redeem sinners from sin. That we were sinners, slaves to sin, in the kingdom of darkness, under the tyranny of sin. But when Jesus died, he restored us, he redeemed us, he bought us back and he brought us out of darkness, he brought us out of sin and he redefined us as sons and daughters, he restored us to a right standing with himself, he redeemed us. Paul says, this is amazing, Paul says you and I can do the very same thing when it comes to time. That we can live in such a way today that we can seize the God moment, that we can step into the appointed season that we can walk through the open door. And when we do, somehow we're able to rescue from loss those wasted years, those wasted days, that wasted time. We're able to buy it back. We're able to restore it, reframe it, redefine it. I'm not talking about the minutes of our life. I'm talking about the divine moments of our life, those opportunities. It's Abraham leaving Ur. It's David in front of Goliath. It's Gideon and the Midianites. It's Moses at the burning bush. It's Joshua at the Jordan. It's Peter putting his net on the other side. It's Paul on the road to Damascus. It's that divining moment when God steps in and he gives you a nudge. He gives you an open door to do something that ripples into the future and somehow redeems the past. And that opportunity is to do what is good, what is right, and what is best, and to seize it, to take action, and to step into it. It's when you just have a feeling, I need to call him, I need to call her, and I just want to tell them how much they mean to me. And you call them and you say, listen, I don't know, I just had you on my mind this morning, and I want you to know that I love you, and and I'm thankful for you. And, And then they're quiet for a moment, and they're like, you don't know how much I needed this right now. That's the moment. 
It's that moment that you're at the grocery store and for whatever reason, you just got that nudge, you got that, you got that whisper, you've got that little push that says, I don't know why, but you just need to pay for this guy's groceries. It doesn't look like he may need it, but he looks, I don't know, but you just, you just can't shake it. You can't get rid of the whisper. And so you just, it's embarrassing and it's awkward, but you step around and right when he's getting ready to pay, you slip your card in like a ninja. And when he looks at him, what are you doing? What are you doing? I, I, I just feel like I wanna do this for you today. And then tears comes. He says, you don't know how much of a difference this is gonna make this month. It's that desire that you keep having to get healthier for your kids and for your grandkids, but you just, you just haven't stepped into it yet. But finally, you take action. And you have no idea what it's going to mean. It's that opportunity that you take to tell the people that you love that you love them, that you're grateful for the people you're grateful for. For some of you, it may be just admitting, you know what, I got a problem. And it's a real problem. And I, I can't do it on my own. I can't manage it on my own. I need some help. And it's that divine moment that your destiny changes. It's that call to adventure. It's the call to slay the dragon. It's the call to new alliances that begins to change your future and rewrite your past. Paul says when we're wise, we look for opportunities, we see them, we seize them. And when you seize the moment, when you seize the moment, it redeems the time. When you seize the moment, it begins in some way to buy back, restore, redefine, reframe lost yesterdays. When you seize the moment, when I seize the moment, Paul says we are redeeming time that we thought we would have lost forever. Making the most of every opportunity, he says, because the days are evil, time's winding down, get busy. And then he ends with this, therefore do not, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So what's the will of the Lord? That you would live and I would live an abundant life that I would love my neighbors, myself, all the things that Jesus taught, that's God's will. We know what, he was very clear what his will for us was. To do the hard work, to act, to obey, to risk, to stop procrastinating, stop neglecting, to count our days, to seize the opportunity, to step into it, to end all these unimportant distractions, to reorganize our lives around our faith. And we'll talk more about that next week. Because when we understand this, he says, we are once again, going back, redeeming the time. So today is an opportunity for us all who needs to, to correct course, to learn from our failures, to do things different, to do things better. And when we do that, Paul says, we're redeeming the time. We're buying it back. We're restoring it. Today is an opportunity. Today is an opportunity to begin to reframe what you thought where times and days and years that you'd never get back. Today's the day to strap on discipline because discipline only wears, weighs ounces. Regret weighs tons. Today is the opportunity to do what needs to be done. And it's like, hey, what, what am I gonna do with that? What am I supposed to do with that? What's well, a good question? And here's how we end it. Paul's got all of this in his mind, and I think that, I, I can't prove it, but I think Paul goes back in his mind to the Old Testament because he's an Old Testament scholar, and there was a group of people just like you and just like me 
who wasted time, wasted years, wasted opportunities, and they refused to do what God asked them to do. And so God let them suffer the consequence of their choices, which is the judgment of God all throughout the scriptures when God lets us have our own way. And God lets a big plague of locusts come in on the nation of Israel, and it destroys all the agriculture. It destroys the economy. It destroys livelihoods. It destroys lives. And there's years of just desolation, years of destruction. And just like we would do, some of those Israelites would look back and say, what were we thinking? We've wasted so much time. We've wasted so many years. We knew better. And then God sent a promise to them. And he tells them in Joel chapter two, I'm gonna restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. All those years you thought you lost, I'm gonna fill your barns. All those days you thought you'd never get back, in this next season, there's gonna be more fruit than you could have ever raised in that season you thought you lost forever. What's happening in this next season, this appointed season, you're not even gonna be able to compare it to what you lost in the last season. You're not. You're not gonna be able to compare it because I'm gonna fill your barns and I'm gonna give you a harvest. And in doing so, you're gonna gain back all the years. You can go forward on your next slide there, but you're gonna gain back the years that the locusts took away. In other words, God's gonna help you recoup, recover, regain, lost time and opportunities. And I don't know how he does it, but this is what he does. When we follow Jesus today, somehow he reaches in to our future and he changes it. He prepares it for our arrival while at the same time reaches through the dimension of time itself to our past and begins to rewrite, recast every bad choice, every bad relationship, every bad attitude, every shallow thing, every distraction, every wasted day, every wasted year. And he swallows it up in his story of grace and love and mercy and forgiveness. And when he turns every bad thing good, it is no longer wasted. Our trials become trophies. Our valleys become our strength. Our failures become our wisdom. Ashes become beautiful. Darkness gives way to light. The ruins themselves become glorious. So when we change course today and we seize the moment, that divine moment, that invitation, that nudge, that whisper, It not only changes your future, but it redeems the lost days of your past. Today is an opportunity for better. Make the most of it. And last thing, don't forget that when you turn to God, He will return to you the life you gave away when you turned away from Him. He'll redeem the years the locusts stole. Even when the locusts consequences of your own choices he'll swallow up all that story in his goodness and grace he will redeem the time wasted in your life and mine and that is good news
Father, speak to us. Help us to hear what we need to hear. Hold on to what we need to hold on to. Find encouragement, find hope, find peace, find joy. Help us to count our days and to do today what we know we need to do. Believing that it will not only change tomorrow, but it will change the wasted days of our past. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for love. Thank you for hope. Thank you that there's nothing we can't come back from. Failure is not final. Setbacks are setups. And you're turning every bad thing good. You waste nothing. Where sin abounded, your grace always much more abounds. And we're grateful for it in Jesus' name. Amen.